Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, my friends, we are, like I said, here in chapter 19. And chapter 19 is another example, it's another one of those chapters in that section of chapters where Solomon is giving us a whole bunch of these independent little ideas that kind of stand alone, they're on their own, they're ideas though that we can apply to our lives and and really uh, benefit from doing so. That being said, in this chapter, a little bit different than many of the other chapters, we have a number of verses that combine, connect. So three or four verses that will go together. And so we'll look at them today uh, accordingly. But let's begin here. Solomon says in verse 1, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked and speech and is a fool. Now, Solomon has talked many times about the value of honesty in a person's life. He's talked about uh, a character that is marked by integrity. And that's where he begins now in this particular passage, again, saying better is a poor person who walks in his integrity, is emphasizing the importance there of integrity. And too often in our society, we value other things more than our character and our integrity, and thus we're willing to do whatever is needed to go in that particular direction to get, the direction, to get those particular things. So if we value wealth more than our integrity, we'll sacrifice our integrity to get wealth. If we value fame more than our integrity, we'll do whatever it takes to get that fame. If we uh, desire or we want value popularity, then we're willing to sacrifice certain things, sacrifice who we are, sacrifice the integrity that God calls us to walk in in order to lay hold of that popularity or whatever. And Solomon says that's a mistake. Anyone that's willing to sacrifice those things for those other things, their character for these other things, is a fool for doing so. And here, he draws the contrast in particular between a poor person who is honest and a devious person, and presumably he's getting at a person who becomes rich because they are devious. So he's drawing this contrast between an honest poor person and a devious, distorter of the truth, wealthy person here. And though our society may say otherwise, what Solomon makes clear for us is this. It is far better to be poor and honest than to be rich and foolish. It's far better to be poor and honest than to be rich and foolish. And again, the idea seems to be here that the person is poor because, in this instance, their integrity. They could have cut corners. They could have lied about certain things. They could have said something and done something else here. But their integrity wouldn't let them. And because of that, they are suffering, if you will, the consequences for that decision that they're walking in poverty. And Solomon said that's a far better place for you to be. Now, the reason, among other reasons, is because any riches that we might gain from, as the word says, crooked speech, is going to be temporal at best. And so we lie, we deceive, we get ahead, and, you know, we get a big paycheck or whatever it may be for doing so. At the very best, that's going to be a temporal gain that we have. Jesus said this. He said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? And could any term more aptly describe a person that would forfeit their soul for a temporary thing at best than the word fool. 
And that's the word that Solomon uses. A person that would do those things, that would sacrifice their integrity, sacrifice their character, so that they could have something which at best they can only hold on to for just a little bit of time. Such a person, Solomon says in verse 1 there, such a person is a fool. And so again, it's better to be a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is living their life as a fool. They're selling their soul for something they can only temporarily possess. The value of integrity, the value of character, Solomon uh, lifts up in that first verse. We would be wise to do so as well. Let's go on to verse 2. He says this. He says, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Now the picture that Solomon has in mind here is a person who knows what he wants to do, but doesn't know how uh, he or she should do it. And you've probably been there, right? That happens. You know that something should be done. We have to do something. We want to step up and we want to do something, but we don't know exactly what we want to do. You see it all the time in politics. And something will happen in government, for instance. Something will happen, and people are like, something should be done. And so Congress, they'll get in there, and everyone, we're going to do something. What should we do? Just something. We have to do something. We have to do anything to say that we've done something. And I think that's a mistake politically when that is done. Usually you're setting yourself up for an error when you do that. It is certainly a mistake individually in our personal lives when we do that sort of thing. And so we just run forward here to do something because something has to be done. Solomon says that's a mistake. There's an old expression that goes this way. It says, haste only adds to mystery, or excuse me, misery. Haste only adds to misery. When we are in so much of a hurry to do something that we don't take time to think, we don't take time to ask some questions, we don't take time to pursue and receive counsel, we're setting ourselves up for error. And the way Solomon says that here in verse 2, he says they miss their way. That is, their feet miss their way, that they're walking on sort of this narrow balance beam of sorts, but they're in such a hurry that they miss their way, they fall. He says, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. They trip up. King James says it even more stronger. The King James Version says they sinneth. Now, I don't want to trip, and I certainly don't want to sin. And so Solomon's exhortation to us then is it's better to stop. It's better to think things through. It's better to seek godly counsel. It's better to seek God's counsel through prayer and then act. And it's when you follow sort of those steps and you stop, and yes, something has to be done, but that doesn't mean we just do anything. It's when we pull back and we think it through and we pray it through, that's when we keep ourselves from making that bad decision and the regret that comes with that. So stop, think, pray, listen to counsel, and then make your decision. Verse 3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Have you ever done something dumb and then blamed the Lord for it, and you were mad at him? Nobody in here? Scott did. We know that, of course. I mean, that was an easy one. How often we do that. And here Solomon essentially says this, the foolish person doesn't listen to the Lord, doesn't seek the Lord, doesn't walk with the Lord, and then when they end up in trouble, they go ahead and they blame the Lord. And that doesn't make any sense. And we do that very often. And the reason why we did it is because your great-grandfather did it. I know your great-grandfather. You didn't know, but I know him. His name was Adam. And maybe he's your great-great-grandfather. But Adam did the exact same thing. You remember when Adam fall and he, he took of that forbidden fruit. 
and the Lord seeks him out and he has that conversation there with the Lord. Adam, in, when he was confronted about his own decision and his own sin, Adam had the nerve to say to the Lord, you know, if you didn't give me this woman, this would have never happened. And so he blames the woman, but ultimately he blames God. And this, again, this verse is when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Adam there sins, and yet somehow it's God's fault. And when you really think about that, that's the height of arrogance. The height of arrogance on display when a person does that, and I have to say when we do that, and how often we blame the Lord. God has given us his word. He's revealed to us the blessings of walking in his ways He's revealed to us the consequences when we go astray and that he's going to allow those consequences to come to bring us back in line. He's revealed all of these things to us and despite all of his measures to keep us walking in that path, we turn and we blame God when we ignore uh, his counsel and experience the consequences of what he said would come. And what it reveals is it's one more revelation, if you will, of the hardness of our hearts. That's the proclivity of our hearts, to go in that direction and to turn blame elsewhere when really it all should come down upon ourselves. And so we read this this verse here, this observation that Solomon makes, and we commit ourselves, you know what, I'm not going to be that person. Because what Adam should have done, the New Testament is very clear, you're going to sin. Every one of us in here, we're going to sin. The Bible is very clear about that. And in the New Testament says, when you sin, confess your sins. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive you of your sins. That word confess there, it means to acknowledge it. And that's where Adam makes the mistake. He doesn't acknowledge his own sin, but he blames it on others. He may have eventually, but not initially, and he blames it on Eve. He blames it on the Lord, and so often we do that. And we rage against the Lord, so to speak. Rather, it would do us well to say, you know what, Lord, this is exactly what you said. This is exactly what you said not to do, and I did it anyway. Now I'm experiencing the consequences of it. Lord, would you bring good from this evil? Would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? Would you help me to walk with a new purpose? And you move forward in those particular ways as opposed to blaming God for these particular things. Does that make sense? It's important, I believe. Verse 4 says, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now, very matter-of-factly, Solomon here observes the the innate selfishness of the human heart. That every one of us, at our core, initially, we are a people that are selfish. We want what we want. We want to do good things for our kids so that they'll be good kids and then we'll be happy and we'll have a nice peaceful adulthood. We want to do good things so that they become famous and they say, it's all because of my mom and my dad. And people are like, wow, you're a great person or whatever. Innately, we have to work against our selfishness. Innately, we wake up thinking about ourselves. And here is one of those examples. And it's just simply in this fact that the one who has wealth will never lack for friends, it seems. Whereas the one that is poor, even the one friend that he did have, once that friend realizes, well, you have nothing for me, will move on and will pass on from that particular person. What a sad condition of the unregenerate soul that we only want friendships that we have deduced will benefit us. What a sad condition of our souls. Now, two verses forward, verses 6, verses 7, also touch on this idea. So we're going to put them in here with it. It says, Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to the one who gives gifts. All all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? 
He pursues them with words but does not have them. When we would go on our mission trips to various places, oftentimes we'd encounter all the kids of town. And so the kids would come and, and people that were with us would have like bags of candy. And so we're giving out candy and there's 700 kids that in you know, little teeny hands that are reaching there for candy. Then the candy runs out and all these kids are gone. It's my friends. You know, I thought you people loved me. You loved my candy, didn't you? They love you for your candy. When a man is giving out gifts, then everybody wants to be that particular person's friend. And you put all these verses together, and again, this idea is that people tend to befriend those for whom they hope to benefit. And so if the person can increase my popularity quotient, if I could just, young people think this way a lot, if I could just get into that popular crowd over there, then I'll be popular. And so they go and they try and somehow get into that crowd and be friends with that group of people. If a person can get me a job, this is what old people do. Oh, oh really? You work for so-and-so? Should we get to know each other? You know, whatever. Maybe they can get me a job. Or maybe they can get me into some coveted event. You know you too? Well, you think you could get me backstage or something? And now we want to be their friend. Or young, I don't know, who do young people like? Who do we, you don't know, say, I don't know. Old people like you too, I guess. I don't know. That's at least what I threw out there. Um, but if you could get me into that event, now I want to be your friend. Now I'm going to call, hey, man, I was, just, I was just thinking about you and the fact that you could get me tickets. And I just wanted to check in because I care about you. <gasps> really? You have two extra tickets? Oh, how nice. I didn't know. If the person can give us access to gifts or money, then we want to be their friends. And that is the way that the world is. That's the way many of us are. Some of you are smiling because you're like, he found out. He knows this about me here. That's the way that many of us are, but it's not the way the believer should be. And it's really important. Now, in the New Testament, I want you to turn there so that you can read it. And, you're, and it's going to be on the screen, but I want you to turn in your Bibles, which you're supposed to be bringing, to the book of James. It's toward the back of your Bibles. Right after the book of Hebrews, James chapter 2. And I'd like you to see it in your Bible because then sometimes these words will just jump right off of the page at us. I was reading this again recently, early today even, and I was like, these words couldn't be more clear. I don't think anybody that understands the language and so on can read James 2 and walk away like, I don't know what he's trying to say or whatever. It is just so incredibly clear. And we're going to read it together. You can follow along as I read. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the topic, partiality, as the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you can just stand back over there, or you can come and sit down at my feet, <coughs> excuse me, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, he says, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world that you're rejecting, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you, you have dishonored the poor man, he says. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Many times, not always, but many times. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you, this is the, the big part, 
really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, catch this here, you're committing sin, he says, and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. And so Solomon's observation is that the way that the world often does it, befriending people that can benefit you, And showing partiality to those that can help you and ignoring those or worse to those that can't. Here Solomon observes that that's not the way it should be for believers. And James goes so far as to say showing partiality for someone because of their wealth or their popularity or their fame or anything else you think they can offer you. James actually goes so far as to call it sin. And so whether a person is rich or poor, whether they have something to offer or not, the follower of Christ is instructed to treat them consistently and fairly and without partiality. And so if you find that that's a trend in your life, maybe not just with rich people and poor people, oftentimes it's more, you know what, they're kind of annoying and I don't want to be around annoying people. And so you walk down the hall and what do you do? You put your head down. But this person over here, man, they, they run the show, and I just want them to recognize me. Hey! And now we've we got all the time in the world for that particular person. You see what I'm saying? And so however it may work in your particular life, let the Lord speak into your life about it. Partiality is not of him. All right? And if we show partiality based on things like that, uh, then we, we err in doing so. And so make it a matter of prayer. Let the Lord change your heart uh, in those things. Let's go on to verse 5. He says that a false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. Well, he brings up here a false witness. And he does that three times in the chapter. And so we'll look at a couple of them all together. Verse 5 here about the false witness not going unpunished. The one who breathes out lies not escaping. Verse 9 says something similar, a false witness will not go unpunished. And then the second part of the phrase is different. It says, and he who breathes out lies will perish. And then down in verse 28, which we'll look at more next week, he says, a worthless witness mocks at justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So three times in this chapter, numerous times in this book, scattered throughout the entire book of the Bible, there's comment made about a false witness. And that comment, the the idea of the term false witness, here it refers to like a court case situation. So we would use like perjury. But you'll notice there, he also talks about lying, which is in the same realm there of bearing false witness. And so lying there is brought up. And it shouldn't surprise us that so much is said about it in the scriptures. In fact, we know that one of the very Ten Commandments that's given to us in the book of Exodus speaks about not bearing false witness against your neighbor. And Solomon here, he tells us these things, that the worthless witness mocks at justice. The one who gets up on the stand and says, yes, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but then lies because it'll be advantageous somehow to them. Maybe someone paid me a bribe, so I'll lie. Maybe I like this person more than that person, so I'll lie. For whatever reason, he says here that that person mocks at justice. The Lord has given us a system of government in our society. We'll talk about it a little more. And much of that involves the courtroom, where decisions can be hammered out and official decisions can be made. The person that would go into that courtroom and be willing to sell their testimony for one thing or another, money or something else, mocks at justice. And you're going to be sorry that you did so. 
Because if our society is given over to injustice and you're a part of it, even, even if you're not a part of it, but you're in part of it, soon you will be enveloped by it. And you will suffer the consequences of living in a society that is not given over to justice. You don't want that, Solomon says. You want to live in a society that is marked by peace and fairness and equity. And you want to live your life, you want to get up, you want to go to school and work or wherever and not have to think about these things. You want to live in that sort of a society and you mock it if you go into the courtroom and you lie about it. So Solomon, he doesn't say it here, that's what the fool will do. Really? That's what you want to do? What a foolish thing Solomon is saying here. Notice he says in verse, the verse 5, he says uh, that mockery will not go unpunished. That false witness will not go unpunished here and then he names what that punishment will be in verse 9 he says the one who breathes out lies will perish now that word perish there is a word that is reserved in the scriptures for divine judgment and so many of you know in the new testament where it says god so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes on him would not perish that word perish there is a word in the scriptures referred to divine judgment And so the Lord here says the one who will take or make false witness will not go unpunished and they will experience divine judgment for doing so. And so the false witness may get away with it here on the earth. Somebody paid them a bribe, they slipped them a little money, they told their lie on the stand, nobody ever knows, now they're sitting on a beach and everything is comfortable for them there. And they think they get away with it. The Lord here says no. Even if you're not held accountable in this world, you will be held accountable in the next. So the the lie may seem to triumph for the time being, but the truth will eventually reign supreme, is what Solomon reminds us here. And so we would be wise then to be people given to truth, because ultimately that's what's going to reign supreme. Now there's another point about verse 5. It's worded in many of our modern versions as a statement, In uh, actuality, it was originally worded as a command. And so the idea then would be the command that the false witness shall not go unpunished. You should punish the false witness is, is really how it was worded. And so I would say this then. If you are a mom or dad dealing with a young child given to lying, it's serious and significant, and it should not go unpunished. Well, At least he's not beating people anymore and lighting the cat on fire like he used to. It's just a little lie. It's not just a little lie. It's something that needs to be dealt with. And so whether it's a mom or dad dealing with their kid or it's a situation where the judge has to deal with the one that was caught uh, bearing false witness on the the witness stand there, it should be dealt with. And when the society doesn't deal with it, the consequences are significant. And so we cannot allow these things to just go on without consequences. And so particularly in our personal lives. I came across this verse in the book of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 9 of Jeremiah. And he says this, everyone deceives his neighbor. You may have been in circles that do that. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. Now notice this phrase. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and they weary themselves by committing iniquity. He says there they've taught themselves to speak lies. You may have discovered this in your own life or people that you know. Lying becomes a terrible habit. It just becomes a terrible habit in our lives. And it doesn't begin with the big whopper of a tail. It just begins with small little things and we start lying about things. And suddenly it becomes this habit in our lives where we begin telling lies about things we don't even need to be lying about. 
Now, you don't need to lie about anything, but oftentimes you can make a case like, well, I had to lie or I would have gotten in a lot of trouble. F- suddenly we find ourselves lying about things we don't even need to be lying about. And the reason is, as it says there, we have trained ourselves to lie. And so lying, whether it's the big ones or the little ones, it has to be dealt with. That's Solomon's command, that lying should be dealt with. And so I'll say this. Don't think about, you know, I'm going to have a talk with Sally. Sally really needs this message, and I'm going to bring it to her. Think about yourself right now. If you have a tendency to lie, to exaggerate, to tell your tales, and so on, you should and you must acknowledge that as sin in your life. And when you do that, you acknowledge it as sin. That's your confession. Lord, I I do it. I don't know why I do it. I don't want to do it. Lord, I'm giving it to you. Then you make it a matter of prayer. Then you seek the Lord for his strength. Then you call yourself on it when you catch yourself doing it. And if it is a habit in your life, you will find all the, why did I just lie to that guy? You call yourself on it. Hey, sir, please, could you come back? I just lied to you, and I'm sorry. I don't want to have to have that conversation, so I skipped the lying part altogether. Did I tell you about the time I got pulled over by the police? Uh, could you believe it? Me, of all people. But I made an illegal U-turn. The cop pulled me over. You made an illegal U-turn. I said, what? I'm lost. I don't know where I'm at, man. And he said, oh, yeah, where do you live? Oh, right over there, you know, or whatever it may be. He said, never lie to a cop. And I said, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm so sorry, or whatever. But you get, you have, and, I, and I pray, believe it or not, I pray that for my children, all of your children, all of us. Catch my kids in lies, Lord. Never let them get away with it. And then my poor kids are like, stop praying, not prayer, or whatever. But it's for their good, isn't it? And so you call yourself out on that lie. You force yourself to have that uncomfortable conversation. By the way, I was like 17, when, when that particular thing happened. It wasn't last week or anything like that. We even asked trusted friends to keep us accountable, to ask us, you know, how you doing with, you know, you asked me to pray for you about lying. How you doing with that or whatever? And that, that's an uncomfortable thing, but it's a serious thing, and so you take serious matters to deal with those things. Okay, make sense? We did 6 and 7 when we were looking at 4, so let's go down to verse 8. It says, whoever gets sense loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding will discover good. Whoever gets sense will uh, loves his own soul, it says there. Again, it's a reminder. He's been saying it throughout our study of the importance of seeking wisdom and getting wisdom. Now, he, here he uses the phrase of getting sense. That's wisdom there. Some versions translated as sound judgment. Some versions translated as common sense, which is really straightforward. And and I thought of this, you know, what the problem with common sense is? That so few people have common sense. You know, that's the problem with it here. And the reason why so few people walk in wisdom, so few people have sound judgment, so few people exercise common sense, it's given to us in the verse. Two key words there gives it to us. The first one is in the beginning of the sentence. It says, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. That word gets there, it means to acquire something and then to make it your own, to acquire something and to make it your own. The other phrase is toward the bottom where it says keeps understanding. That word keeps there means to retain something. And so then the thinking is the reason why so many people lack wisdom, the reason why so many people lack sound judgment or gain common sense is because it's not enough to learn these words of wisdom. We have to go beyond learning these words of wisdom. And if it's ever going to benefit us, then we have to not only learn them, but we must acquire them. 
So we not only hear about it up here and post it up on our walls or read it in our Bibles or whatever, but we take them and we make them our own. We acquire them and we make them our own. That's getting wisdom. And then we have to continue to make it our own. That's keeping understanding. That's retaining wisdom. And oftentimes what happens is we learn it and then we go and do whatever we want to do anyway. And so, yeah, you've acquired it up here. You've learned it up here. You didn't make it your own. Or we make it our own, you know, we're 18, 19, 20 years old, but now we're 25, 30, 35, or whatever it may be, and we're getting older, and we no longer maintain it or retain it as our own. And that's the mistake here. And Solomon says, no, you have to acquire it, you've got to make it your own, and you've got to keep it as your own and keep walking in these truths. And then he tells us, you do that, and then you will, look at the end of the verse there, then you will discover good. By learning these things, making them your own, and keeping them as your own, then you will discover good, then you will discover blessing. Because again, when we walk in God's ways, that's the place of blessing. That's the place that the Lord sees and shines his favor upon that aspect of our lives. And notice this, God's ways are for our good. That's why God gives us these things, for our good. He wants to bless us. He wants us to walk in the place of blessing. And so he's told us how to do that. And we would be wise to walk in those ways for our own good. Amen? Now, verse 10 goes on, and it says that it's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a servant or a slave to rule over princes. And his idea here is this, that both a fool living in luxury and a servant ruling over princes, those ideas are out of place. Those are concepts that seem to be opposed or are opposed to the normal order of things. As he's been telling us, the person who walks in foolishness or folly will end up in ruin. Not luxury, but in ruin. And so Solomon's point doesn't come out and say it, but his point is don't be a fool you don't want to live in ruin you, you want to live ideally in luxury and things like that so don't be a fool learn these words of wisdom apply these words of wisdom keep applying these words of wisdom and you'll end up in the place that the lord you would desire to be and the lord would have for you to be the place of good verse 11 continues he says good sense makes one slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook and offense now there's a similar verse down in 19 which shed some light on this thinking here. We'll look at it more next week, but let's read it. It says, A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. For if you deliver him, you only have to do it again. And again, we'll look at that more, but it it speaks to this idea of a fool giving vent to his wrath. That a fool gets angry and they let everybody know and they just blow their top or whatever it may be. While the wise individual, the one he uses the phrase has good sense, the wise individual is slow to anger, and works to keep that anger under control. So a man of good sense, a woman of good sense, knows how to control their temper and can graciously overlook it when somebody wrongs them. And it's a familiar topic. We looked at it back in chapter 14. Chapter 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So the importance of keeping our temper under control. Now, there are things that will make us angry. 
We live in a fallen world. People are going to wrong us. They're going to offend us in big ways and in little ways. There are things that are going to make us angry. There are things out there that should make us angry. There are things that should bother us. So anger, then, is not the problem. The problem that Solomon is touching on here is uncontrolled anger. That's what needs to be addressed with and dealt in our lives. And again, I've said it before, a lot of times people say, well, that's just who I am. Yeah, you were also on your way to hell. But Jesus intervened into your life, and he began to do a changing work within you. This is an area that he wants to do a changing work within. And so if you're a person given to uncontrolled anger, it's an area that Jesus wants to address in your life. Henry Ironside, great Bible commentator, I think he was out of Philly, if I remember correctly, in the 1950s or so, Ironside said this. He said, an uncontrolled temper manifested in, a, in hasty anger unjudged, then he used the fun word, bespeaks a man who has never learned in the school of God the great lesson of self-government. It bespeaks a man who has never learned in the school of God. You know who's enrolled in the school of God? Every one of us that named the name of Christ. If you name the name of Christ, you are in the school of God. It's the process of him teaching you, changing you to conform you or transform you into the image of his dear son. And you know one of the required courses of the school of God? It's self-government or the school, if you will, of self-control. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians, he said that the fruit of the Spirit how do I know that God is working in my life? How do I, can I see him working in your life? By the fruit that is being produced. And the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit, is, as he says, self-control, self-government, to use the phrase that Ironside uses. And so the person that has given themselves to the Spirit and is living their life in submission to the Spirit will have control of their anger. And that's what Solomon is dealing with, is uncontrolled anger. The fool gives full vent to their anger, and in doing so reveals that they are a fool. And Solomon calls that into question. And so the wise individual will control their response to angering situations and go beyond that. Notice what it says at the end of the verse. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. And and by that, the, the simple idea is when offended, the wise individual can kind of say to themselves, well, you know what? I've offended a lot of people too. And they can overlook it. They can let it go. And people notice that. And they'll say, wow, what a great guy. It's the, the, to the glory, to your glory to overlook an offense. Now, this doesn't mean when we overlook an offense, it doesn't mean that the wise individual never confronts a situation. There are times situations need to be confronted. But the wise individual realizes they don't need to confront every situation. Every time somebody has wronged them, they don't have to deal with that particular thing. You know why? Because sometimes things happen. In, in our interpersonal relationships, we're dealing with fallen individuals, and sometimes things happen. And we all know we've wronged other people plenty of times. Sometimes we realize it. We get in the car. We're like, I can't believe I said that. can't believe I did that. can't believe I didn't do that or whatever. And sometimes we know it. Oftentimes, we don't even know that we've offended another individual. And we drive away thinking, you know, that we're like angels or something. I'm such a good person or whatever. And that person's angry with you because you hurt them here. So we've offended people many of times, many times. We can show others a little bit of grace when they commit an offense against us. 
And in fact, that should be our default response. Our default response is, I'm going to show grace to the person that has offended me. Not, I'm going to get even and I'm going to talk this, they're going to know that they bothered me. The default response should be uh, to show grace. When something needs to be dealt with, then you deal with it. But not in uncontrolled anger and uncontrolled wrath. You take your time with it. So if you're offended, that moment is probably not the time to deal with it. You take your time with it. You go away. You pray about it. You pray, Lord, is this one of those things I should overlook? Should I broach this subject? If you feel the Lord's leading is, you know what you need to. This is an instance where you need to have the conversation. All right, Lord, how shall I have the conversation? What would you have me to say? What do you want me to address? What things do you want me to leave out of the conversation? And then you're prepared. Then you approach and you do so with humility. You do so recognizing that you've offended plenty of other people in your past. And then you talk it through with the person. That's how wise people deal with the challenges of interpersonal relationships. And that's what Solomon is suggesting to his son. I want you to grow up to be a wise individual and I want you to respond in this way to those that will offend you. And that's how, what he would have for us. Amen? Verse 12. Getting thirsty. Verse 12. Hang in there. It says that a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Now, we've looked a few times already at the idea of government from our study of Proverbs. And what we know in the Bible, the Bible makes clear that governmental authority has been put in place and designed by God for the purpose of establishing and maintaining order within a society. This is what the Bible teaches. Romans 13 in particular is one of those passages that really couldn't be more clear on the subject. I'm going to read the opening verses of the chapter to you. I believe it'll be on the screen. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, what he's put in place, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, however, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, for... Because of this, you also pay taxes. Coming up, right? We're excited. Can't wait. Pay my taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all to what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now, there's a few things in there that we take notice of. Number one comes from verse one of that passage. And that is that government is established by God. Now, that does not mean that all governments are godly. There are plenty of examples in history, plenty of examples in present day, but the idea of government is from God. And so the person who decides, I just want to throw off all government, and what, there was a bumper sticker. It said, like, embrace anarchy or something. I forget. But it, it lifted up the, you know, the good character things of anarchy. Come on, I want to be an anarchist or whatever. The person who embraces anarchy is not, they're standing opposed to the way that God has established things. 
So government, the idea of government is from God. Second thing we learn is this in this particular passage here, and that is that there are two aspects to the administration of good government. Number one is to reward good behavior. The second is to deal with bad behavior. And so Paul writes there in verse 3, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is your servant for your good. That's the idea of rewarding good behavior. The second one comes from verse 4, second half of verse 4, which is if you do wrong, be afraid he doesn't bear the sword in vain. That's the idea of punishing bad behavior. And what Paul is saying there in the New Testament, Solomon says in a little more poetic language, he says a king's wrath is like a growling, the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. So, do you want to fear the king? Then break the laws, and you'll come face to face with his growling lion face, and you'll come face to face with the king's wrath. You want to be at ease? You want to be refreshed daily by living in a well-ordered and peaceful society? Then, as Paul said, do what is good, and you will receive the king's approval. Now, what becomes complicated for us is we live in a society where we get to pick our leaders. And we live in a society where I could say, I don't like that president, or I don't like that congressperson that I have there. I want to have somebody else to be my president or my congressperson. And so in that sense, we begin to work against that person at the next election. And so that's where it gets complicated. But you can do that in a way that doesn't despise government, where in reality what you're doing, so to speak, is despising the current governor. And you wouldn't, no offense to Phil Murphy, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, but where you want these ideas to be put in place. But you're not abandoning governing, or government, I should say. That makes sense? So you want to be blessed and live in a peaceful society where it's just generally present like the dew in the morning when you wake up in the spring? Well, then do what you're supposed to do. You want to experience his wrath, then don't do what you're supposed to do. And of course, Solomon's exhortation is choose the the former, not the latter. Verse 13 goes on. A foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Solomon points out two things that make domestic life difficult. Two things, a wayward child and a nagging wife. Sorry, ladies. uh, But he says two things that make life, domestic life difficult, a wayward child and a nagging wife. And so the exhortation, unspoken exhortation, is don't be either of those two things. So if you're a young person, if you're a kid in your, your parents' household or whatever, the scripture says, honor your father and your mother. And then it goes on, Paul points this out. It's the first scripture with a promise for your good. It'll be for your benefit if you honor your father or mother. And it'll be to your parents' benefit if you honor them as well. Secondly, this idea, the second portion of the verse, it speaks to wives. And wives, I'll just let you decide what it means to not be a continual dripping rain. Because I don't want to touch that. Already? Uh, I'll just leave that there. Uh, But I I will say this. There is a time for husbands and wives to talk things through. And, And I think this applies to a husband talking with his wife and a wife talking with her husband here. But if your strategy is I'm going to wear that person down, I'm going to drip and drip and drip until they go crazy. And then they'll just say, fine, I'll do it. Or whatever. If that's your strategy, you got the wrong strategy. Okay? Uh, that is a way to ruin a good marriage here and separate the relationship that a husband and a wife are supposed to enjoy. Husbands and wives need to change. All of us need to change. 
And nobody really knows that as much as the spouse who's in that particular relationship. And if you have deduced, I will change my husband. I'm going to change my wife. You've made a mistake. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to change your husband and your wife. And may I say, if you're sitting next to your spouse right now, please don't give him a little jab. All right, that would be a bad decision right now here. But the reality is it's the, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to change your spouse. Give the Holy Spirit room to do that. There's a wonderful resource. Maybe you feel like, yeah, but you don't understand my husband or you don't understand my wife here. There's a, a woman, her name, I think she passed away. She did. Her name was Nancy Missler. And Nancy Missler, she was married to Chuck Missler. Chuck, many of you know from Bible teaching and stuff like that. Well, Chuck didn't always know Jesus, and even after he began to know Jesus, he didn't live his life like he knew Jesus, and he's just sort of a know-it-all of a person and obnoxious in the home and all these things, and Nancy just couldn't take it. And there were times she said, I'm out of here. I'm walking out of this or that, and, but Nancy got saved, and Nancy's trying to be the godly wife that the Lord was calling her to be, and she learned some valuable things, and initially, Nancy decided, I'm going to change my husband, and that doesn't work, does it? And it didn't work. And then God began to minister to Nancy's heart and realized, and she wrote a book about it entitled, Why Should I Be the First to Change? That God wanted to change her and leave her husband to the Holy Spirit. And she did. It's a great resource. It's very small. Uh, You can pick it up there. Why should I be the first to change? I think you would really benefit from it. I've benefited from it. I've shared it with people in counseling situations. And so um, see if you can find that particular resource. But we leave those things to the Lord. Don't be a nagging, what's the word? A continual dripping of the rain, hoping that will accomplish your purpose. It typically just creates a hole uh, in there, and you don't want it. Let's go on to verse 14. I made it through that verse. Whew without any people throwing stuff at me. Moving on, though, it says in verse 14, it says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. All right, so now good stuff about wives here. Prudent wives are a gift from the Lord. We we learned last week, verse 22, it says, He who finds a wife, and again, remember the implication, a good wife. He who finds a good wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And if you have such a wife, you're married and you can look to your wife and say, man, I have a good wife. Remind yourself daily that that wife is not the result of your great wisdom. It's not the, the result of, wow, man, I really picked well, or I'm such a smart guy. But it's a gift from God in your particular wife. And certainly the converse is true as well. If you've got a good husband, that's a gift of God in uh, your life as well. And remind yourself daily of that, because if you don't, what you'll begin to start doing is say, well, look how smart I am that I chose such a good wife. I've done this before. My my wife's pretty remarkable. She really is. A lot of you know my wife. She's pretty great. And there are many times I find myself telling myself, you sure are a smart guy that you pick such a great wife. Well, the danger with that is you start telling yourself how smart you are. Then you start telling yourself, you know, She's pretty lucky to have me. Then you start telling yourself, you know, there's a lot of other ladies out there that would be lucky to have me too. And you go down some sick, twisted path. Go back to the beginning and remind yourself that that great wife that you have is a gift of God. Now, if you're not married, and I know a lot of us here, we aren't married, I want to encourage you in this, that if it's the Lord's will to bring someone into your life, he is capable of bringing someone into your life. If my wife is a gift to me, he brought that gift into my life. 
And if he can bring that gift into the lives of others, he can bring that gift into your life as well. And the danger is oftentimes we seek to get ahead of God. I just so desperately want to be married, anyone will do. You know, you, your lady, you're, let's do it. Let's get married or whatever it may be. That's a mistake. And if you get ahead of the Lord in these matters, you end up with the, ver- the wife from verse 13, the continual dripping, non-wise, prudent wife there, or lack of prudent wife there. And so be wise, entrust yourself to the Lord. Don't go down some path that you shouldn't be going down, as we learned in the verse earlier, making hasty steps, whatever it may be, because you're going to get yourself into trouble. Wait on the Lord for his provision, because that's the place where there is blessing. You are, believe me, if you're not married right now, you'll be so glad that you did to wait for the right person than to marry the wrong one, and there'll be no way out. And you'll be coming and setting up counseling appointments with me. And I'll say, I told you. And I'm just kidding here. Now, if you don't have that relationship yet, pray. Be the wife, be the husband that your wife would look and say, you're a great husband, you're a great wife. And pray that God would change that individual's heart. And we believe that he will. Amen? And I've seen it. I have seen people come to me and say, man, my husband, my wife, and God changed that person. And the testimony is just so good. So let the Lord do his work. Amen, good friends? Let's go on to verse 15. It says, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. We've been looking at slothfulness, laziness. If you're lazy, you're always in sort of this daze. You've been there probably. You're just sort of in this daze. And and we all have those kinds of days D-A-Y-S. We all have kind of those moments in time. But So you've probably experienced it. Laziness is often, it's like this sleepy drug. And it just sort of casts this deep sleep on us. And then it convinces us, you need more sleep. You need more sleep or whatever. And then we don't get anything done here. The reality is, what we need to do is, rather than being slothful and lazy, what we need to do is get up and to get going. Now, believe me, there's a time to rest. I understand that. And we, we, we're instructed about that in the scripture. But if the pattern of your life is lying around on a couch and you're like, I'm just too tired to do anything, you need to get up and you need to get going. And when you get up and you get going, the juices start flowing. And all of a sudden you find you have all kinds of energy and the chemicals in your body and all these sorts of things begin to happen. And I'm sure you've been there where you feel like, you know, I just need to lie around all day. I have off on Fridays. That's my day off on a Friday because I work on Sundays, if you will. Uh, Although this isn't work, it's fun or whatever. But nonetheless, I take off on Fridays. And here's the danger for me is on Saturdays, you know, kids got to go to soccer and they all got to be in various places. On Fridays, my whole family leaves and I'm sitting home alone in my house. And I just I'm going to sit right here in this chair and I'm going to take that remote and I'm going to turn it on. And the next thing you know, I've watched 16 hours of Netflix all right, and I know what's going on on that particular program there. And I, then I'm like, well, I'm just too tired to get up. I have to rest or I won't be able to preach on Sunday or whatever it may be. You know, and you begin to tell yourself and you feel like you have no energy. You're in that little daze that that verse talks about. It casts you into a deep sleep. Then I watch the clock. That's what I do on Fridays. I watch the clock because my wife comes home around 12. She's at Bible study in the morning with uh, the women's group. She comes home at 12, and I don't want her to find me having been laying on the couch the whole time. And so about 11.30, I start to stir, and I, I start mowing the lawn, and I start doing things. And then all of a sudden, because I want to come home and say, you're such a great husband. But then all of a sudden, the juices are flowing. 
and I'm getting chainsaws out and cutting trees down, and I'm doing all kinds of work around the house, whereas I thought I didn't have anything in me. Once you start doing something, you have all kinds of energy, and you're more energized by the activity than you are by the rest. Now, that's very just very practical, okay? That's just normal life here. I think it applies to spiritual things as well. You're like, oh, here he goes. No, I really do. That the more diligent we are in our spiritual walk, exercising various spiritual disciplines, etc., the more energized and strengthened we are in our spiritual walk so that we can walk our walk and even we can run our race. And so the next time that you feel like you're too overwhelmed to take time to pray or to meditate on God's word, that's the time you don't need to be sitting around watching Netflix. That's the time you need to pray and meditate on God's word. I don't have any energy to do this physical and spiritual. I'm going to do it anyway. Oh my gosh, I suddenly have energy. You may feel like you don't have it in you. You do. And so you do it and suddenly you see yourself, you're far more refreshed by sleeping in than you are by just a little bit of energy that you invested into it. I'm going to be honest with you here. I'm a morning person. I like to get up. I get up around five in the morning and I read and all that. The rest of my family starts waking up around 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, whatever it may be. I've been up for two hours. They come walking into the room and I'm like, hey, how you doing? So good to see you. Give me a hug. And, and I just look, just, and my wife has even told me, please, just be quiet. You know what I mean? You've been up for two hours. None, we're just waking up here. And so I'm a morning person. What I'm not is an evening person. I'm not a night person. And interesting, we have some nighttime events here at church and things like that. One of those is the Wednesday night Bible study, which starts at 7.30 p.m. The other is the all-church prayer meeting, which starts at 6 o'clock p.m. I, especially in the winter, do not want to go to the Wednesday night prayer me- uh, Bible study and the all-church prayer meeting on Sunday evenings. Can I be honest with you here? But here's the problem. I lead those two things. And so I'm required to be at those particular things in order to lead them. But what happens is it's 6 o'clock, and I'm starting to put on my pajamas. And I want to rest, and I want to watch a quick program, and then, you know, time for bed, and all this kind of stuff. When nighttime comes in, that's what I want to do. But because I have to be there, I get dressed, I go. I think I've shown up in pajamas before, definitely sweatpants. And I show up at these events, and then something begins to happen. So now I'm at the Bible study and I'm teaching and I'm asking questions and people are sharing great things and we're having a conversation by it. And almost every week at the, when I close the time in prayer, I almost always will say something like this, well, this was just really good for us to be together. And I walk out of there energized, enthused, excited, revitalized by gathering with the saints around the word. Same thing happens when we, we go to those prayer times. There was a time a little while ago, it was last month or two months ago, you know, when it gets dark in the winter, like two in the afternoon, you know, and so here I am, I'm at home, I'm sitting on my couch, and it's dark, and it's cold, and prayer starts at six, and so, you know, 5.30 or so, you got to get in the car, and I said to myself, I'm not going to prayer. I don't want to go out in that cold, dark air. I lead the prayer. So I said, you got to go, and so I did, and when it was over, I was like, that was good. That was a blessing to my heart. I was revitalized by it. All right, so I've been as honest with you as I possibly can. I'm not as spiritual as you might think. There are times I don't want to be at those things, but I find I benefit from them. I'm strengthened by them. So the next time you feel like, you know, skipping the fellowship group, you just need a break from people. Those are times you really need to go to those groups. 
and you'll find that you're energized and enthused by it. The next time you feel like lying around watching TV, put that aside. Guard. You need to guard. We need to guard against slothfulness, laziness, particularly spiritually. If we want to experience the opposite of what's talked about here, hunger, if we want to experience the blessing and the richness that God has for us, then we have to guard against slothfulness. All right, does that make sense? Let's do one final verse, verse 16. It says, whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. (coughs) Excuse me. He who despises his ways, meaning God's, will die. We see here again, God's commandments are for our good. There is not a single commandment of God for your detriment in the entire Bible. God's commandments are always for our good. And when we ignore God's instructions, when we choose to walk in our ways instead of his ways, we do so to nobody else's hurt, and oftentimes other people collateral damage, but ultimately to our hurt, not to his, ultimately to our detriment. And so in that respect, it's actually a kindness to yourself to obey God's command. Because when you obey God's word, you keep yourself from the things that he has already told you and knows are going to harm you, you experience his blessing. And that's what he wants for us. You know the verse, many of you do. Jeremiah 29 says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good, plans for welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's God's desire for each of us. Plans for good. And so let's be those type of people. Let's trust him at his word. Let's be quick to remind ourselves the next time we're tempted to go astray that his ways are for our good and for our well-being. And again, that's the place of blessing. Amen? Pretty straightforward. Let's, Let's pray about that. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.